Well, a week ago, we read from Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, 18. We won't read that entire passage again this morning, but we will be picking and choosing bits from it. And a week ago, as we looked at it, we began to unfold and I hope marvel at this beautiful tapestry of grace that is Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. And as we pulled the passage apart a few threads at a time, we discovered that really in these 46 verses there are just two main lines of thinking, two main ideas that the author has in mind, two threads of thought, if you will. The first, which we looked at a week ago, was Jesus as a better sacrifice than anything the Old Testament has to offer. And the second, we said last week, we would look at today is Jesus, the sacrifice offered in a better tabernacle, a better temple than the Old Testament had to offer. So again, last Sunday, we spent our energies primarily thinking about Jesus as a much better sacrifice, his human, sinless, willing, once for all conscience cleansing blood is far better than the blood of bulls and goats. That was one main strand of thread in this tapestry. This morning, we're going to look at the other, namely Jesus, that sacrifice as having been offered in a far better tabernacle than the one that we read about in the Old Testament. Now, before we begin really to delve into Jesus as better than the tabernacle, it would be helpful right off the top if we made sure that all of us know what we mean when we refer to the tabernacle. It's a strange word, and some of you may be familiar with what we mean right off the top, and some of you may be saying, what in the world is a tabernacle? Well, very simply, a tabernacle is just an old-fashioned word for a tent. And in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle, a large tent that God instructed Moses to build. Later, he instructed Solomon to take that tent and replicate it in an actual solid stationary building which is called the temple but the purpose of this tent being set up in the midst of the people of Israel was so that they might have a place where they would offer their sacrifices the blood of bulls and goats and so on so it was that whenever someone among the tribes of Israel sinned they came to this tent this tabernacle and they presented an animal sacrifice to the Lord as a way of payment for their guilt That was the tabernacle. They had to bring a sacrifice to atone for their sins, but they couldn't just bring it anywhere and it couldn't just be offered by anyone. There was a procedure for these things and there was a place for these things. The procedure was you came to the tent, you gave the sheep to one of the religious leaders there, one of the priests, and he took that sacrifice into the tent and sacrificed it there in the tabernacle, sprinkling its blood in a few appropriate places and atoning in some way, though we saw last week, not in a full or final way for the people's sins. That was the tabernacle, a centralized religious tent where sacrifices were offered. Now, as you can imagine, if you can put yourself in the shoes of the Israelites, the tabernacle for them then and later the temple for them was a a very important place. It was a place of great relief for many an Israelite because there... At that tent, when the sacrifice was offered, the weight of his sin was eased just a little bit. It was a wonderful place. And so he could walk away from the tabernacle with a vivid reminder in his mind of all that he had seen and all that had happened. Perhaps if he was there as the priest sacrificed the animal, he had a vivid reminder splattered on his sandals or on the bottom of his garment. 
And it was a vivid reminder, both the tabernacle and what happened in that place, that God is merciful to all who call on him. He is merciful to all who call on him. He does make a way for sinners to come to him and to be forgiven. But when we come to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, we discover that as wonderful as that place was, as helpful as the memories were that the people carried with them from the tabernacle, we read in Hebrews 9 and 10 that Jesus was offered as a far better sacrifice than anything that ever happened in the tabernacle. And we saw that a week ago. And not only that, but this better sacrifice was offered in a far better location, a far better tabernacle. And we might say today, if if that's our focus, Jesus offered in a better tabernacle, that really this message is going to be an exposition of Hebrews 9, verse 11, and then verse 24. Verse 11 really summarizes what we are hoping to say and take with us this morning when it says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. In other words, when Jesus came and offered blood that was far better than the blood of bulls and goats, when Jesus came and offered up his own life as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, he did not do it in the tabernacle. He did not do it in this man-made religious tent he didn't do it in the temple in jerusalem that later replaced the tabernacle he did it in a better tabernacle a greater and more perfect place and verse 24 then explains where that place was located christ did not enter a holy place made with hands a mere copy of the true one but into heaven itself Now, we know that Christ died on earth, but the point is that after he died, he went and, as it were, sprinkled the blood of his sacrifice, not behind the veil, not on the Ark of the Covenant, not in Jerusalem, not in the tabernacle on earth. But when Christ sprinkled his blood, he went to the very throne of God and sprinkled it there where God sits forever so that we know that in heaven there is a strong and a perfect plea for us, a great high priest who is there and whose blood has been sprinkled there for us. Christ sprinkled his blood, not in the earthly tabernacle, but in heaven itself. So the question that the author is addressing partly here is, what does that say then about the earthly tabernacle? If Jesus sprinkled his blood in heaven and heaven is so far greater than the earthly tabernacle, what do we say about the earthly tabernacle? Was it just a shabby old religious tent that they just threw away and said, ah, this is not a big deal at all? No, not at all. This wasn't just man's bright idea, this tabernacle. Though it was made with hands, chapter 9, verse 1 tells us that the things that took place in the tabernacle were indeed divine worship. The tabernacle was ordained by God. He told them to do it this way in the Old Testament. So then our question then is this. Why? Why did God tell them to do this? If God was going to send his own son to be the sacrifice for sins, and if God's own son was going to sprinkle his blood, not in any earthly place, but in heaven itself, why was there even a need in the first place for a religious location like the tabernacle? What was the point of it in the end? What's the point of having this enormous tent that God had Moses build and where all the priests did their daily work and where the animals were sacrificed and where the blood was sprinkled? If, as we saw last week, chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats 
to take away sins, what was the point of the bulls and the goats and the tent in which they were offered? That's our question this morning. And the answer again comes from verse 24, chapter 9. In that verse, the author informs us not only that Jesus was offered in heaven itself, the true tabernacle, but he also informs us that the earthly tabernacle, the one which was made with hands, was a copy of the true one. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. His main point is that Jesus went into heaven, but in, in telling us that, almost kind of like a drive-by, he also tells us the point of the earthly tabernacle. It was a copy, a model, a replica of some sort of the heavenly one. And that's the answer. That's why God gave us the earthly tabernacle in the first place, so that we would have a copy, particularly so that the Israelites would have a copy, a picture, a tangible representation of heaven, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, the tabernacle where Christ would sprinkle his blood. So in the end, the tabernacle that was so important in religious life was a symbol. And it was important, but it was important only as a symbol that pointed heavenward to the true throne room of God where Christ even now sits at God's right hand. The tabernacle was a model of heaven. Now we're going to come back to how that works and what that means for us. But again, we wanted to clarify the word tabernacle. Let me clarify the word model. What do we mean when we say the tabernacle was a model of heaven? Usually when we think of a model, we think of a, a miniature exact replica like a model car or a model railroad or a model airplane or a little toy kitchen set that children play with. All these kinds of models are exact miniature versions of the real thing. That's not exactly what we mean today when we say the tabernacle was a model of heaven. It wasn't exactly a miniature exact replica. That's not what we're saying. So these tabernacle furnishings like the ones in verse 2, the lampstand, the table, the sacred bread, all those things were models of heaven, yes, but by saying that, we don't mean that heaven in heaven there is a gigantic lampstand and there is a, a really huge table with enormous loaves of bread on it. That's not what we're thinking of here. It's not that everything that we see in the tabernacle has a one-to-one -one exact copy, only a lot bigger in heaven. So when you think of heaven, you shouldn't think of a tent and you shouldn't necessarily think of veils and lampstands and all these other things. The tabernacle is a model of the throne room of heaven, not as a miniature replica, not like a Fisher-Price kitchen set with a little spatula and a little fried egg and all those things. Rather, the tabernacle is a model of the heavenly places by way of symbol, by way of symbol. So though the tabernacle furnishings, the table, the lampstand, the bread, the altar, and so on, don't necessarily have giant identical counterparts in heaven, each of these items that are listed in verses 2 through 5 here, do symbolize something that's in heaven. They do remind us of something that's in heaven. They do point to some heavenly reality. So when we think of the tabernacle this morning as a model of heaven itself, we don't think of the Fisher-Price kitchen set that the tabernacle is just a small miniature. Rather, let me give you another picture uh, that you might carry with you. You might think of the tabernacle kind of like the souvenirs that you bring home from a trip. You go on vacation, you get uh, some item from that place. 
uh, bring it home as a reminder of your trip. Toby and I, both in our home and in my office, have several little souvenirs, either from countries that we have been to or where our friends have been. We've got things like a cup and saucer from Romania, uh, a wooden giraffe from Zambia, a wood carving of a mother holding a baby from Ethiopia, a tea set from Turkey, all these things that either we or others have brought here from other places to remind us of those other countries and of those friends as well. Each of those little items symbolizes something from Ethiopia or Turkey or Zambia or wherever it may be. But that's not to say that Romania is one large cup and saucer, right? Or it's not to say that the main truth about Zambia is giraffes and that if you went there, all you would see all day is giraffes running around. We have these symbols, but they're not one-to-one correlations of exactly what that country is like. They're simply reminders of the country as a whole and of those friends who have been there or of our times there. That's what we need to see in the tabernacle this morning. This tent, which later was a building, the temple, was filled with symbolic items. But none of them explain what heaven is like exactly. None of them is a perfect picture, one-to-one, of what is in heaven. And they weren't supposed to be that. They're not simply miniature versions. Each of them rather reminds us of some truth about heaven. Or, as we're going to see, some person who is in heaven. And as reminders of heaven in general, then we need to see them as symbols, not exactly as replicas. So when the Israelites drew near to this sacred tent, they had all these symbols that they were face to face with. And when the priests worked there day to day, they were constantly to be reminded by everything that they saw of the greater and more perfect tabernacle, which is in heaven itself. And they were to be reminded more than that of the threefold God who dwells there. They didn't know everything that we may find out this morning because they didn't have the full revelation of the New Testament. But when they walked through the temple, they were to say to themselves, as grand as this is, as wonderful as this tabernacle is, it is pointing to something bigger than this. And we need to worship him and think on him. Now, to help us do that, I want us to read this morning verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9. We'll pull some things from elsewhere in these verses, but... Let's read chapter 9, verses 1 through 12 about this earthly tabernacle. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, When these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, Both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, I want you to notice just initially in looking at these verses that the author uh, does something interesting in verses 1 through 5. That is, he begins to compile a list of the various items that made up the tabernacle furnishings. He lists 10 of them in all. If you go back later this afternoon and count, you'll see 10 items there in the tabernacle. There were others, but he lists 10 here. But then he adds this very simple caveat at the end of verse 5, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And I got to thinking as I studied this, why not? Why can't we now speak in detail? Well, I think for a couple of reasons. I think the main reason is that the author wants to get onto his main point. His main point is not what's in the tabernacle. His main point is, is that all the things in the tabernacle point to Jesus and that Jesus is greater than the tabernacle, that Jesus is all in all, and it's to him and his throne room that we should look. And so he doesn't want to spend a lot of time thinking about the items in the tabernacle. But then the question that I asked was, well, why then do that at all? Why list them at all? Why list these ten things if we don't have time to talk about them? And if the main goal is to say that they all point to Jesus, why not just say the temple had lots of furnishings, but they all point to Jesus who is far greater than they? Why bother to list them in the first place if we cannot now speak of them in detail? Well, I think the word now is key for this sentence. In other words, I think we should read it like this. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. In other words, there is a time to think about these things in detail. So perhaps the author is hinting something like this toward us with this little phrase. Perhaps he's saying you should go back later and research these things a little more closely. I've listed them here for you. I'm not going to tell you everything, but you go back when you have more time and you stop and think about the temple furnishings and how it is that each one of them is symbolic of heaven itself and of Christ who dwells there. I think that's what the author is up to in verses 1 through 5. He, without slowing down the freight train of his main idea, which is to point to Jesus, he leaves us enough information here to go back on our own and dig a little deeper into this tabernacle and find out exactly why it was a model of heaven itself and how that works. And this morning, by splitting this passage up into a couple of sermons, I've left us a little bit of time to go back and look. I think it will be helpful to us to go back and look and see what these various things might have symbolized. Chapter 8, verse 5, which we saw two or three weeks ago, informed us that the tabernacle was simply a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And now chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, is going to give us a list of each of those individual copies and shadows. And we are going to pause and take a look at each one of them and see if we can figure out, not just by brainstorming, but from the rest of the Bible, what each of these various temple furnishings, tabernacle furnishings might have symbolized. Now, as we do that, I want you to notice first uh, that the tabernacle, the sacred tent, was actually made up of two tents. You may have noticed that as we read verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, there was an outer tent or the holy place. And then inside that large outer tent, there was an inner tent, verse 3. 
called the Holy of Holies. The outer tent was an open air tent. It was actually like a wall of cloth that went around and it was open to the sky. And then the inner tent was closed off completely. And that was the Holy of Holies. So two two parts to this tabernacle. Now, in the outer tent, verse 2, there were, among other things, three items. A lampstand, a table, and sacred bread. A lampstand, a table, and sacred bread. Let's think about those just briefly. First, the lampstand. The lampstand was what we would call today a menorah. It was a a set of candles or lamps that kind of looked like this, seven of them sticking up from one base um, with oil running to them to keep them burning constantly. And that's what it was to be, a lamp in the tabernacle constantly burning before the Lord. Now, why a lamp? Why a lamp, sevenfold lamp in the tabernacle? Well, if you would go this afternoon and read Zechariah 4, there's this famous verse in Zechariah 4, isn't there? Not by might and not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now that verse isn't just set in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of this conversation that God's having with Zechariah. And God, in this conversation, shows Zechariah a sevenfold lamp, a menorah, just like the one that was in the tabernacle. And as he converses with Zechariah, the question, the inevitable question is, what does this lamp mean, God? And the answer is, it means not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. In other words, the lamp that was constantly burning, that constantly had oil coming to it so that it never went out, was a symbol of how the spirit constantly gives us oil, as it were, fuel, so that our burning for Christ never runs out if we belong to him. The lampstand in the temple was a symbol of the constant presence and power of the Holy Spirit who is always before the throne and is always inside of our lives as believers. So the lampstand was there to remind the people of one person of the Trinity. And then you had the table and the sacred bread. These two things go together because on the table was the sacred bread. So what about those things? What does that mean? Why did God want bread always sitting out, fresh bread every day in the tabernacle? It wasn't because he might be expecting guests. It was because the bread also symbolized something. What does bread have to do with anything? Well, I think Jesus gives us some hints when he says things like this in John 6:41. I am the bread that came down from heaven. You remember the bread that's in the tabernacle is symbolizing something in heaven. The people who are listening to Jesus in John 6 would have known that there's bread constantly in the tabernacle. And when he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, he's telling us that bread is supposed to remind you of me. I am your sustenance. Same thing in John 6:35, where he says, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And Luke 22:19, where Jesus holding up a piece of bread says, this is my body, which is broken for you. The sacred bread in the tabernacle was a reminder that there is sustenance in heaven that will never run out. That's why the bread was there fresh every day. And that sustenance is Jesus, the bread of life. 
It's interesting also when you go back into the Old Testament and you read uh, Exodus 25, which is one of the places where God gives instructions about how to put this tabernacle together. God tells Moses that you're to put this table there, you're to cover it with gold and it's to be a certain size, and you're to put these loaves of bread, 12 loaves of bread on it every day, and they're to be fresh. And the bread is called not just bread, but it's called the bread of the presence, which literally is translated out of the Hebrew, the bread of the face. The bread was to be called the bread of the face. And I think the reason for that is because though no one has seen the Father at any time, God has sent His Son, Jesus, the bread of life, into the world, not only to be our spiritual sustenance, not only to be our salvation, but to be for us the face of God. That if we want to know what God is like, we can see Him physically in Jesus. He is the bread of of the presence of God with us. So here we have this perpetually burning lampstand and this table that is always served with sacred bread. And these two things were to be reminders of two of the three persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit who always empowers us like oil to a lamp and Jesus who is the bread of life that we can see and touch and taste and handle as John said in 1 John 1 and the bread of life who sustains us and saves our souls. Now, what about the objects behind the veil? The inner tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, there were more objects there. First and most important, verse 4, was the ark. The ark. The ark was the centerpiece of the entire tabernacle. It was, if you will, the piece of furniture that all the rest of the decor was to match. It was an important thing. What was the ark then? Well, again, Exodus 25 is explaining these things that Hebrews mentions briefly. And it tells us the ark was a big golden box. I mean, the long and short of it is that the ark was a box overlaid with gold. Now, what's so special then about a golden box? Why did God want a golden box in the Holy of Holies, in his sacred tent? Well, Exodus 25, again, this would be a good passage for you to go back and read later, but Exodus 25 tells us all the things that are to go into the box. It's supposed to be a certain size, a certain height. It's supposed to have a lid that comes off, poles to carry it, all these different details. And then at the end of all the details about what the ark is supposed to be comes the most important detail of all, where God tells Moses about the ark, there I will meet with you. There I will meet with you. That's the symbol of the ark. The golden box, the Ark of the Covenant, was a symbol of God with His people. The Ark wasn't God. God doesn't look like the Ark, but the Ark was a symbol of where God will meet with His people. In that particular little tent, on top of that little box, God would come, as it were, and sit on that box as His throne with His people and be with them. So the box was a replica, or at least a reminder of the throne of God, which is in heaven. That's why the priests, when they would sacrifice the uh, bull or the goat in the outer tabernacle, once a year the priest would come into the inner tabernacle to sprinkle blood, and the place where he sprinkled the blood in the inner tabernacle was on top of the ark. It was a reminder to them constantly that they were bringing the sacrifice to God himself because it was on top of that ark where God said he would meet with them. They were bringing the blood of the sacrifice to God himself. Self. He alone can forgive sins. 
It's important for us to remember when Jesus died, he wasn't just doing something nice to show us how good God is, although it does show us how good God is. He wasn't simply paying off the devil so the devil would let us go and leave us alone. No, that's not it. He was bringing blood to God himself because God alone can forgive sins. And that's why the priest brought the blood in and laid it on top of that ark. The ark was a symbol of the presence of God himself, the Father, with his people. So now we have all three persons of the Trinity, don't we? The lampstand symbolizing the spirit, the bread of the face or the presence symbolizing the sun, and the ark symbolizing the presence of the invisible God, the Father, with us. Next to the ark, verse 4, there was a golden altar of incense. A golden altar of incense. Is there any passage in the Bible that clues us in on the significance of incense? We think of incense largely in connection with uh, cool coffee shops and people who smoke dope so that they can cover their, uh, their, their smell. And so we think of incense primarily, oh, it's a good smelling thing. You know, it covers things up. It's nice for smell. Well, God didn't need that. God didn't need a nice smell in this room, particularly since no one went in there except for one day out of the year. The incense wasn't about uh, aesthetics. It wasn't about the smell. What is incense about then in the Bible? Well, Revelation 5.8, I think, tells us. In Revelation 5.8, we're getting a picture not of the symbol, but of the real thing. We're getting a picture in Revelation 5 of the throne room of heaven itself and the throne of God himself. And around God's throne in Revelation 5, there are 24 people worshiping him, falling down, casting their crowns at his feet. And it says in that passage that each one of them was holding something in his hand. Actually, something in each hand. In one hand, he was holding a harp to sing or play the praises of God on the harp. And in the other hand, he was holding, each one of them was holding a golden bowl full of incense, which is the prayers of the saints. Each one of those elders was bringing incense before the throne of God as a symbol that the prayers of the saints, like that incense, are rising up to heaven. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? It's a lovely picture in the tabernacle with this incense altar as the incense was burned. It wasn't just providing a good aroma. It wasn't just covering up the bad smell of dead animals everywhere. The point of the incense was that it was a reminder that as the smoke of the incense rose up and hovered around the ark of God where God's presence dwelled with his people, so it is that the prayers of God's people offered in Jesus rise up to heaven itself and hover around God's presence and find answers there. When we offer our prayers in Jesus' name, they really do go all the way into the throne room of heaven. The incense altar in the temple is just one reminder of that. Also in that Holy of Holies, on top of the ark were cherubim of glory. The ark had a lid, and on either end of the lid was a golden cherubim, a golden statue of an angel standing like bookends on either end of this lid on top of the golden box. Why would there be sculpted angels there? People, again, in our culture, they put sculpted angels out in their yard because they're superstitious and they think that somehow that shows that they really love God or maybe it shows that there really is an angel watching them or maybe if there's an angel going down the street and he sees his picture in their yard, he'll stop and help them. I don't know what they're thinking, but the way we use angels is not what's happening here. We should be careful about this kind of thing. But why God himself put an angel standing in 
uh, the house on Sion, and to hear of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. I think he's talking about the heavenly temple, not the one on earth. Seraphim, which is another word for angels, stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Same thing in Revelation 4, when we get uh, the layers of heaven open to us, and we see around God's throne angels worshiping him. And here we have again angel figurines in the tabernacle, standing majestically, not for looks, not for superstition, not because God needed protection, but because this is what heaven looks like. When you go to heaven, there are constantly these beings hovering around the throne of God, worshiping him. And it was to be a reminder to the people that we are to worship in that same way. Finally, inside of that ark, there were a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod, which budded, and the tables of the covenant, the the original or the second copy of the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. So a jar with the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the Ten Commandments. Now I'm going to take a page here out of the author of Hebrews' book because we do need to move forward, and I'm going to say of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But briefly, let me tell you what I believe they probably meant and symbolized. The manna, again, was probably a symbol of Jesus, the bread that came down from heaven. Manna was bread that came down from heaven. And so when Jesus said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, the people not only thought of the bread in the tabernacle, but they thought of the manna that came down and sustained God's people. And that's what Jesus is for us. Aaron's rod that budded probably symbolized our need for a great high priest. You remember there was controversy in Israel because there were 12 tribes, and God said the only tribe where the priests are going to come from is the tribe of Levi, and particularly within that tribe, the family of Aaron. And so the people got all upset and they said, no, 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 no. You can't just pick Aaron like that. You can't just single him out and give him all the privileges. We should have this privilege too. And so God said, I'll tell you what you do, Moses and Aaron. You take Aaron's rod, the one that he walks with, his staff, and you pick 11 leaders from the other 11 tribes of Israel and you take their staff and you throw them all down and then you come back and you see what happens. And they put the names of each tribe on the rod. When they came back, they all looked the same as before except for Aaron's rod. Now, the dead stick had blossoms, almond blossoms coming off of it. God was saying, Aaron is the one I've chosen. Regardless of the democratic way that you all want to select your priest, Aaron is the one that I've chosen. There is one high priest, in other words. And perhaps that's why this rod was there, to remind the people that there is one high priest who stands in between myself and you, standing in the gap for my people. A symbol that is again fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, who is the great high priest. And then there were the tables of the covenant, the the stone copies of the Ten Commandments, probably very obviously, maybe most obvious of all, symbolizing God's eternal moral law, which stands in heaven and which he has sent down to earth in the form of the Ten Commandments to govern the universe. Now, you can go back and research some of those things on your own and look up the passages about Aaron's rod and so on. But for now, let it suffice to say that behind this second veil in the Holy of Holies, there were, again, numerous items, each one of which pointed beyond itself to some heavenly, eternal reality. But we've left out one item. There was one more item in the Holy of Holies that we haven't spoken of. And namely, 
Verse 3, it was the second Baal. As you entered into the tabernacle, they didn't have doors on hinges like we had. They would have a curtain, a veil hanging over a doorway. So as you entered the large tent, there was a veil there that you went through that anyone uh, who was ceremonially clean could go through and go in there. And all the priests went in there and they did their, their daily work. But then inside there was this second tent. And that tent also had a doorway. And that tent also had a veil serving as the door. One way that you could go into that small tent. Now, through that veil, into the presence of God, the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, verse 7, only the high priest entered once a year, and not without taking blood. So when the priests did their daily work in the temple and they saw that veil, they knew that that's a closed door. Because none of them except for one was the high priest. And even for him, it was a closed door every day of the year except for one. And so they saw this tent and they said, inside there is where God's presence dwells. That's where he's promised to meet with us. But we can't go in there just any time we want. And we can't go in there just any person we want. Only the high priest and only once a year and not without taking blood. So for the Israelites, in many ways, this second veil symbolizes a closed door to God. God wasn't closed off from them completely, but in very many ways, access to him was blocked for the average person. They had to come through the priest to get to God. Sometimes God would come to them and they would be scared to death because they thought they would die. Because the way to direct access, the way of direct access to God was largely blocked by this veil. Verse 8, the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed. But we can look back from the perspective of the New Testament and we can understand a little bit something more about the veil than what they knew. For them it was a symbol that there was one way to God and that largely it was blocked unless the priest came through with blood. Now already things should be registering in your mind. Yes, Jesus has gone through there for us. And so now the way is open. But I want you to scan down to chapter 10, verse 19 and 20 and see something very significant. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he has inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh. For us, when we think about the Holy of Holies, not only does Jesus' blood get us in, but this verse says that Jesus' flesh, his body, was like that veil. Jesus is the one thing that stands between us and God. And so we might look at Jesus and we say, well, there's something in between us and God. We can't get there. But the thing that we know from the New Testament is, is that veil, that flesh of Jesus was torn, broken, open, so that the way into the Holy of Holies, the way into the presence of God, is no longer guarded by a veil that is hanging and closed, but it's guarded by a veil, namely a person whose body was broken and whose blood was shed for us and who bids everyone who will to come to him and eat and drink and find the Lord's presence with them. The way of God is now open because Jesus' blood, Jesus' flesh, like that veil, has been torn open for us. I hope you see that the furnishings in the tabernacle and even the tent itself were merely symbols 
They were not and are not to be admired for their beauty, for the pomp of the rituals which took place inside that place. They were not to be admired as a symbol of national pride, and neither is the temple, whether it gets rebuilt or not. The tabernacle and everything in it was to point people to heaven and to the God who dwells there. And again, they didn't have in the Old Testament all the New Testament explanations that we have seen. But yet the Israelites were to study these things and to think on these things and to say to themselves, if these souvenirs of heaven are so marvelous and so majestic and so filled with meaning, how wonderful must heaven be and how wonderful must the God be who dwells not just in a tent but there in heaven itself. Now let me start to wrap our way to a close by saying this to you. In giving the people mere symbols, mere copies, God was doing something slightly dangerous with the children of Israel. It's not to say that God's out of control because we know that He's not, but in their, from their perspective, God was giving them something dangerous in giving them these symbols because they might be more infatuated with the symbol than they were in love with what it symbolized. It was a real danger anytime God gives us a symbol. You can see that in churches that are overly uh, interested in all the liturgy and all the things that people wear and how the uh, prayers are prayed in a certain form and fashion. There's a danger that we would love the symbol more than what it symbolizes. And it seems to me that in very many cases in the Old Testament, this danger proved a very real threat and many people loved Judaism more than they loved the God of the Jews certainly more than they loved and recognized the Messiah. But I want you to see this morning in our situation that even giving a sermon like this one where I've walked through these various elements of the tabernacle is dangerous. Put you in a precarious place this morning because some of you may hear a passage like this and get all excited about how cool it is that all the symbols lined up perfectly. It's the same thing people do with prophecy. They go through and they find these Old Testament prophecies and they get so excited that they're all fulfilled exactly the way they should be. And it is an exciting thing, but they get more infatuated than that, with that than with anything else. And so they start doing studies on prophecy and they start releasing Bibles all about prophecy and all these sorts of things. They gear their life towards this one aspect of Scripture. And the same thing could be true of the tabernacle. You could think how cool this is and you could go home and spend the rest of your life studying the tabernacle and trying to figure out all the symbols that were there. And even if you got them all right, you could be wrong. Because the point of the tabernacle is not for you to be amazed at how amazing it is or how cool it is that it all worked out just like God planned it. The point of the tabernacle is for you to be amazed with the heavenly things that it symbolized and with the God who dwells in heaven. So if you left today thinking to yourself, wow, the tabernacle, I've got to do some study on this and I've got to find out all the other cool ways that it worked out just perfectly, then we will have missed the point and it would be a sad ending to our day. Indeed, it would be a foolish ending. Let me give you an analogy. Think back to my souvenirs from Ethiopia and Romania and so on. Just think particularly about this wooden carving I told you about of a mother holding her baby from Ethiopia. I bought that because it was an amazing reminder to me of the craftsmanship of these Ethiopian people and because it was an amazing reminder to me of my wife and my children. Now, 
it would be a foolish thing for me to coddle that Ethiopian wood carving and to admire it and to ooh and ah over it and not to hold and cherish the wife and the children that it symbolizes to me, not to cherish the Ethiopian people whom I've grown to from a distance love. It would be a foolish thing for me to focus my attention on the symbol rather than on the reality, to study it, to pour time into it, to cherish it, simply because I could say, well, this is a perfect example of how Ethiopians carve wood. And if I look at all the details, I can think about all the different kinds of tools that they may have used, and I can be amazed at how well they did this project. No, that's not what we do. The most intriguing thing is not how the Ethiopians carve wood. The most intriguing thing is these Ethiopian people themselves and the fact that I got to go there and meet them and the fact that I'm getting to go back in five weeks, Lord willing. See, it's the the Ethiopians and not their workmanship that is really most intriguing. And so it is with God. Should we admire God's workmanship? Absolutely. You should look out at the sunset. You won't probably see it today, but on a day when it's sunny, you look at the sunset and you should be amazed. You should look at the human body and all the intricacy that is there and be amazed. You should look at the remarkable symbols found in the tabernacle and be amazed. But at the end of the day, if you're only amazed with how the particles in the air come together to make the sunset look red, or if you're only amazed at the complexity of the nervous system and how it all seems to just work, or if you're only amazed at how the tabernacle astonishingly astonishingly fulfills all of its promises and all of its symbols, then you've missed the point. The point this morning is not to admire the workmanship, not to admire the tabernacle, but to admire the God who made it and the God who dwells in the heaven that it symbolizes. The point is that we admire God and that we admire His Son, moreover, who went into that greater and more perfect tabernacle and sprinkled His blood for us. So just to summarize, the danger this morning is that we would turn the study of the Bible into a mere academic exercise, one that may fascinate our curiosities, one that may stimulate our minds, but one that can still leave our souls empty. We don't study the Bible that way to find cool little things that we can research and say, wow, great book. No, we study it looking for the God who wrote it, and who makes it a great book. We need to hear something of the warning that Jesus gave to the Pharisees in John 5.39. And I want to read this, and I want you to understand that neither Jesus, certainly, nor I am at all minimizing the Scriptures. They are God's inerrant Word to us. They are all that we need. They are the only sure way that we can know what God is like. But Jesus says something important to the Pharisees about the Scriptures in John 5.39. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. In other words, Pharisees, you're studying the scriptures like academicians. You're studying the scriptures like you would study some theological textbook or some English textbook. It's not the way you do it. You look at the tabernacle, you look at the scriptures, you look at everything that they point to, and you see Christ through them. The tabernacle, which is written of in the scripture, cannot by itself give you eternal life. 
can only give you eternal life by pointing you to the one about whom it testifies, namely Jesus. So why the tabernacle? Well, God designed this tabernacle. He gave Moses a project that would have taken months to complete, millions of dollars in modern currency to build. He commanded the people of Israel to carry it all around the desert for 40 years as they wandered. He commanded them when they finally settled in the promised land to place it in a prominent location. He designed it in such a way that it required constant manpower and immense cash flow to keep it going day by day by day by day. But why? Why all the trouble? Because he wanted the people to have always before their eyes a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. And why is the heavenly tabernacle important? Not for heaven's sake. Believing in heaven can't get us to heaven. We don't worship heaven. Why a picture of heaven? Because in heaven itself is the place where Jesus brought his blood. In heaven itself, Jesus sprinkled that blood before the throne of God above. In heaven itself, the greater and more perfect tabernacle, our salvation was paid in full by God's Son. And in heaven itself, Jesus, our salvation, ever lives to make intercession for us. Even heaven is a vehicle of God to help us look at His Son. All these things are symbols. Now we understand why chapter 10, verse 1, the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never make perfect those who draw near. Now we understand why chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now we realize why chapter 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. That wasn't just futility. It was all a symbol to point people to Jesus, who is the substance. So the tabernacle symbolized heaven, yes. But ultimately, the tabernacle was a large, expensive, ornate, beautiful arrow pointing to Jesus, who is far more valuable. And so is heaven. A large, wonderful arrow, funnel, bringing us to the throne of Jesus and to His Father's throne where we might worship them. It's Jesus, after all, that makes heaven heavenly, isn't it? He is the veil through which we enter the Holy of Holies in heaven. He is the visible presence of God in heaven, the bread of the face. If we were to go to heaven and Jesus weren't there, we'd never see God's face. But when we do and we walk to the throne of God, it's the scarred up face of Jesus and the nail printed hands of Jesus that we will see and say my Lord and my God Jesus makes heaven heavenly because he's the one who lives there forever to make intercession for us he is the one who has appeared verses 11 and 12 of chapter 9 as a high priest of the good things to come and entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle and not through the blood of goats and calves but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having attained eternal redemption for us. It's all really about Jesus. So let me ask you in closing, is it all really about Jesus for you? Are you like God in this sense? Do you have the same heartbeat as the God who built this tabernacle? 
God poured manpower. God poured cash flow. God poured time and effort and thought into this giant symbol so that we would think of Jesus. Are you like God in that sense? Does your heart beat like his? Is your manpower and your cash flow and your time being spent on loving and exalting and cherishing and pointing to Jesus? Is it for you really all about him?